Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So we have been engaging in a necessary yet alarmingly uncomfortable worship series about human sexuality as the United Methodist Church the global denomination is moving toward called General Conference, which is going to be held the 23rd through the 26th of this month. We are, I am about 19 days out from flying there and being on the ground during this monumental meeting. The United Methodist Church was formed in 1968, and there has been no greater meeting of Methodists since that day in 1968 in Dallas, Texas. This is going to be a life-changing and denominationally changing meeting that we're about to have. And no one knows what will happen, and no one knows what the effects will be and how soon they will take place. All we know is that we are being asked by every single bishop, and it's echoing through all of our clergy and our lay leaders, to pray. And before we can just simply entrust everything, we are being asked to search the scriptures and we are being asked to gather together as the body of Christ and and wrestle with this together. And so that's what we have been trying to do, recognizing that in the Old and the New Testament, there are nine citations that explicitly describe non-heterosexual sex, and we have been working our way through those. This is the final one that I will cover in worship uh, today, and the other five we will cover in in small group meetings on Wednesday evenings in May. And so recognizing that this is a difficult uh, topic, that this is not a topic that most people talk about in church, uh, this week when I met people, one of the first things they would say is, so have you gotten any pushback from last Sunday's sermon? And I'm like, no, I haven't. Um, I'm sure there's somebody out there who's really angry at me. But um, one of the things that has been very encouraging to us is that not only myself but the church office has been getting lots of people who have been saying, this is not easy. It's hard, it's a little embarrassing, but it's worth it, it's important, and we agree. We know that this is not easy for us to do, and we appreciate your graciousness and your patience, and I promise this is the last day of this for a little while. So, all right, let's dig into here. The other letters that I've done have been from Romans and 1 Corinthians. Last week was 1 Corinthians. This week we're reading from 1 Timothy, and 1 Timothy is slightly different. Now, in biblical scholarship, there are three letters that are called the pastorals, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And you'll notice that unlike the other epistles or letters, that these are written to individual persons. That is not how Paul generally did things. The Apostle Paul called into ministry after a transformative encounter with the risen Christ as he was going to persecute Christians, wrote often to communities. And so we have these letters that um, are all throughout the New Testament, and the ones that we believe to be authentically Pauline or Paul's are written to people and, and a mass of people. Sometimes they may call out certain people, for instance, if Paul were going to write a letter, he would write it to Crozet, but then he might point out 
me as your pastor, John and Karen Rowlingson as your co-lay leaders. There might be some other people that he had encountered that he would send specific greetings to, but he didn't generally write letters to one specific person. One of the letters that we have that is named after a specific person is Philemon. And in Philemon, Paul is writing to ask Philemon to set free his slave Onesimus, who Philemon had sent while Paul was in prison to serve Paul while he was in prison. And afterward, because Onesimus had become a Christian and because he wanted to be in ministry, Paul wrote to Philemon. Well, he didn't just write to Philemon. If he had just written a personal note to Philemon, Philemon could have pretended like he didn't get it or that he didn't care. Instead, Paul wrote it to the entire community of which Philemon was a part of. And so there was social pressure for them to go, you should let Onesimus go. It was, it was a brilliant move on Paul's part. Here in the pastorals, we find that these are letters that are written to Timothy and Titus, two people that we knew were disciples of Paul that's recorded in the book of Acts, two people who were working alongside him. He had a great respect for them. They were learning from Paul throughout his earthly ministry, and clearly he placed levels of authority and power in them. There were plenty of times where things were just breaking down in Corinth, and Paul would send Timothy to deliver his letter or to deliver a message. And so we have that recorded in Scripture. One of the things that leads us in biblical scholarship to think that Timothy and the first and second Timothy and Titus are not Paul is that one, the Greek is very elevated. There are words that appear in the pastorals that don't appear in any of the letters that we can authenticate as Paul. They, to, to put it lightly, it's a little bit above his pay grade. He's using there are words being used in First Timothy, especially that are very advanced Greek. And remember, while Paul was a Greek citizen, most of his education was in Hebrew, for he was a Pharisee. So he spoke very elevated Hebrew, pretty rudimentary Greek. So some of the wording is different. There's a trajectory that's different. Paul spends a lot of his epistles combating in a group setting, Judaizing Christians. These who had become Christians who believed that in order to actually live that out, that first you had to be Jewish, as the other apostles were Jews who became Christians. And so they believed that you had to take on the full weight of the law. And Paul radically pushes back against that and says that's not true, that he was called to the Gentiles, that he proved that to the apostles in Jerusalem, and that they needed to stop believing that they needed to have grown men circumcised and that everybody suddenly had to be kosher. He pushed back on that. Here, the, the impetus in First and Second Timothy and Titus is more about wrong theology, which tells us that the church has been around a little bit of time so that not only have they codified right theology, but they know what wrong theology is. And so we've got a little bit of progression here. Why is this important? Who cares? The reason it's important is because we are trying to figure out for ourselves as individual Christians and as the global body of Christ how we understand Scripture. Because guess what? We don't all agree. There are plenty of times in Scripture where certain passages are in tension with each other. They might be in outright opposition to each other. And so we're trying to figure out which one do you follow. Right? There is literally a place that says you cannot eat this. And then there's another place where it says I can eat anything I want. So which one do we follow? Now, when I give you that example, you probably know that I'm talking about passages in the Old Testament in Leviticus, and I'm talking about passages in the book of Acts and in a letter of Paul where it says that you can eat these things, that that's not a problem anymore, that we've been liberated from that, and so it's okay to eat those things. Hence, there are millions of Christians that enjoy shellfish and bacon cheeseburgers and just bacon. 
Because we couldn't eat that if we decided that we weren't allowed to listen to the passages in the New Testament and we had to keep to the Old Testament. So right there, you're starting to see at work what we call a hermeneutic. It's a theory of interpretation. It's, to use the big seminary word, it's the way in which you are reading the Scripture. Not only do you read the Scripture from who you are and from whatever standpoint you are, generally when I'm reading the Scriptures, I'm reading it as a Christian. Sometimes I'm reading it as a pastor, as an ordained elder. Sometimes I'm reading it as a mother or a white female, an American. All of these things I'm bringing to my reading of the text, and I have to be aware that they change how I read, but they also change what I get out of the text. And in the hermeneutic, we also create a hierarchy of authority, whether we're aware or not. Most Christians, if given one position in the Old Testament and one position in the New Testament, will choose the New Testament over the Old because we are people of the New Covenant. And that seems to make good sense. Now, if we dig into the New Testament and there's something in the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and then there's something in an epistle and they don't quite jive, we're more likely to believe a Gospel account because chances are we're citing Jesus and we love the epistles, but ain't nobody Jesus. So we will lean toward what Jesus said. It starts to get even more difficult, though, when we start to go through the epistles. If something can be verified to be Paul, called by Jesus Christ, authenticated apostle, and, or something that was written by a disciple of Paul, whom are you more likely to believe? That doesn't mean that we discount something that doesn't trump the other, but that we might not give it the same amount of weight. So when we're reading 1 Timothy... I've already gone over in the last two sermons two authenticated letters of Paul, Romans and 1 Corinthians. And you could hear the zealousness with which Paul wrote there. Uh, Paul was very much about, we just need to lock it down. Jesus is coming back. Just stop all the sex. It's not going to matter in a little bit, so let's just calm down. And everybody hold tight. Jesus is coming back. Please, Jesus, come back quick. That's really where Paul is. Now, Timothy reveals to us that time has passed. What we know from church history is that Paul dies. He's martyred in Rome. And when he dies, people immediately get into panic. They start to think, if Paul is dead, then maybe the whole thing's untrue. Or if Paul is dead, maybe Jesus isn't coming back. Or what are we going to do now because Paul's dead? And they get panicky and they get unsure. And some of them are fearful and hurt. And some of them are angry. And so the disciples of Paul, such as Timothy and Titus and others, and the other disciples of the original apostles in Jerusalem, start to give them something to hold on to. They give them a structure. They give them a framework. They start to build in an order. Paul wasn't thinking to himself, look, I think Jesus is going to be back in like two, maybe five years. Let's create a global bureaucracy. That wasn't how he was thinking. But as time goes on, the disciples of the apostles begin to realize, we're going to be here for a little bit. We're going to have to figure this out. Almost 2,000 years later, we're still here, and we're still trying to figure out the order and the hierarchy and the power and the flow of authority. It remains a problem in the church. One of the other things that you see, if you go back and read the pastorals, is that they give us very important terms and titles and roles and actual job descriptions in some cases that we still use. Titles and roles for bishops, elders, and deacons remain in the Methodist church. I'm an ordained elder. This church has been served by an ordained deacon. We are all under an ordained bishop. 
And so these have been crucial to our denomination. They're clearly important. And that's why we don't simply toss out the pastorals when we go, they're probably not written by Paul. Therefore, we don't just, you know, take a razor blade and cut them out of our Bible. They still have important truth. That's one of the great things about the United Methodist Church is that we believe that all Scripture is the inspired Word of God. We recognize that one person didn't write it all. There are 66 books, and there are probably close to at least 50, if not more, authors of those books, and they all bring a different perspective. The best way to communicate that is by talking about cooking, right? You know that everybody cooks a little different. And people have a different palate. They have a different flavor profile. If you're going to come eat at my house, I can guarantee you one thing. It's going to be spicy. Like, really spicy. I keep Indian and Korean spice on the countertop at all times. So if you don't like spice, don't come hang out with me. And now if you're coming to my house, I might think, they may not like spice so much, I'll need to tone it down, but what I think is toned down and toning down me may still light your palate on fire. And so we have to be aware of that. The authors of the books of the Bible are conveyed in the text, the good and the bad. They were channeling the word of God, the spirit of God was upon them, and they were trying to put God's truth out there, but it came out flavored. Now, I'm sure somewhere on this huge globe of Christianity, there is somebody that is preaching this text today. I'm kind of banking on the fact that there's probably somebody somewhere that is preaching on this text today. They're probably not preaching what I'm preaching right now, and it's certainly not going to come out the same way, because what I feel inspired by the, the Holy Spirit to preach to you today, what you need, the conversation we're having, and the conversation we have had, shapes this message. So even two clergy preaching the same message are not going to give you the same sermon. It's going to be different. The same happens in Scripture. Even though whoever wrote 1 Timothy was probably just as convinced of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, just as passionate about their ministry and the church as the Apostle Paul, they were not the Apostle Paul. So now we're stuck having to wrestle with what's going on. And as we've been exploring in this series, anytime there's a citation about non-heterosexual sex, we have to wrestle with the implications of that for this current context, as the global church is getting ready to gather and determine finally and for the final time what its stance is going to be about human sexuality and inclusion in the church. And as we do that, we're having to wrestle with things like what First Timothy said. But before we get to the words fornicators and sodomites, let's take a moment and back up. The author says that it means that the understanding of the law is laid down not for the innocent, but for the godless disobedient, for the lawless and the sinful, for the unholy and the profane. Seven different groups of people we've got going on here. So as we look at this, we have to realize that none of us are innocent. Christ didn't come because a few of us were messed up. Christ came because every single person will sin if they live long enough. We are all in need of God's grace. There are times in our lives where we have been lawless and disobedient, even those of us who are committed Christians now. Godless, maybe, maybe not, but every single human being is sinful. We all fall short of the glory of God, to quote Paul. All of us are sinners. The question is, what is our sin and what do we need to do to combat that sinful inclination? And that's a deeply personal and individualized answer. Two people who wrestle with the same sin might not take the same path 
to avoid it or overcome it. But we all are sinners. And so when we come to the table and we discuss these texts and what's at stake here, we have to remember that none of us are perfect and none of us has every answer, but that we are all sinful, flawed human beings who are equally forgiven, loved, and free. And with that in mind, we move into the things that it says, for those who kill their father and mother for murderers, we're starting to hearken back and quote the Ten Commandments in Exodus. Because it says there that you shall honor your father and mother, and honoring them does not include killing them. We are not called to murder. And then it shifts into human sexuality, fornicators and sodomites. And as I said last week, fornicators are anybody who is having sex with someone that they are not married to. Whether you are single or whether you are married to someone, if you're having sex with someone other than your spouse or a spouse, then you are a fornicator. That's not for heterosexuals or homosexuals or any other sexuality other than to say any person doing this. And then sodomites. And as Paul used that word last week, a sodomite is somebody who is participating in anal sex. And it is a male-gendered term in this case. Slave traders. It's an interesting shift. Paul doesn't address the slave trade. Slave trade is throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, it's generally done by people who are not Hebrew, Israelite, or of Judaism. Instead, other cultures engaged in that. Not that there weren't slaves in, in the Hebrew people, in the Israelites, and in the Judaic people. But instead, it was a different form of slavery, and it wasn't through active slave. People who had debts that they couldn't pay could sell themselves into indentured servitude to the one to whom they were indent the, the one to whom they owed. And then, at the conclusion of paying that back, they could be free. They were given their freedom. They didn't have slave traders. Notice it's traders and not slave owners. It doesn't actually outlaw owning of slaves here, just engaging and perpetuating the trade. It's an interesting shift. But liars and perjurers. Liars are people who don't tell the truth. Perjurers are people who don't tell the truth under oath. Paul spent a lot of time in his authenticated letters telling people not to go to court against one another, that Christians shouldn't be suing each other in court. He pulls this from the Torah where it says that Jews shouldn't sue each other. And so therefore, he continued that, that if we are truly united in our love of God, we should pursue reconciliation rather than litigation. And here you have it here. And then you have your catch-all, whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Anything else can be lumped in there. But here we are in our time wondering what we're supposed to do with this text. The text isn't really focused so much on human sexuality as it is naming it. And it doesn't get as explicitly detailed as our reading from 1 Corinthians last week. Instead, it just seems to throw it out there. Because what you'll find if you read further on in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy is that there's a repeated call to ensure that Christians aren't upsetting the social order. That in the secular side of things, that they didn't want Christians making waves and furthering the persecution that they were already experiencing. Paul was a bit of a pot stirrer when it came to culture. He would walk right into the forum and tell them what he thought about Jesus Christ. That's why he gets arrested all the time. That's why he gets beaten, whipped, and let go. Because he's more than happy to walk out into the secular sphere and tell them where Jesus nailed it and where they're failing. The pastorals don't want to do that. That kind of behavior led to mass persecution. They've got a bad name for Christians. They're trying to overturn things. 
They're letting slaves eat with free people. They're letting women have positions of authority. These crazy Christians, they're going to destroy the entire world. Paul didn't care because the world was coming to an end. But the author of Timothy recognizes that the world may be coming to an end, but it's certainly not going to happen right now. And so we have to figure out what we're going to do. Whereas Paul was saying, no sex anybody, the author of the pastoral seems to be saying, well, we recognize we're going to be here for a little bit, and if we don't make more Christians, we're going to have a problem. And so they're having to look at things through a different eye. And that impetus is there. What do we take from that as Christians is the struggle. It's the hard work that we are engaging in. Now, this right here is the first textbook I ever bought at William & Mary. And as you can see, it's not a textbook, it's a Bible. But as a religious studies major, this was considered a textbook. And it's rather gaudy and it's completely falling apart. If I held it with one hand, it would almost disintegrate before you because it's 16 years old. But what I wanted to show you was that I've split it open so that this is the New Testament and that's the Old. And what you'll notice is that there are these blue tabs, nine blue tabs. There's one for every passage that we are going to be scrutinizing, not only in this worship series, but in the study group in May, because these are the texts that are cited. And I have been reading these. There were 10 years where I read them every single day. Every single day, I read all nine passages. And I read them because it was confusing. It was hurtful. Sometimes it felt hateful. There are people in my family, there are friends in my life, there are people that I respected and that I trusted, my colleagues, my co-workers, my fellow students, in some cases beloved professors, who would have been persecuted because of these texts. And I struggled with what we were supposed to do. I acknowledge that they are here, I am clearly acquainted with them, but what am I supposed to do with them now, is the question. And this is what we are wrestling with. And what's at stake is how the church will continue. And we are fearful. Some of us are very anxious about it. Some of us are very concerned. Some of us are angry. But here's the glorious truth. The United Methodist Church has one foundation, and that foundation is the grace of God. And the grace of God is because we are all sinful. We wouldn't need God's grace if we were all perfect. We wouldn't need God's continuing grace if we got it right the first time we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Instead, we recognize that this is a constant journey. It's a constant struggle with each of our individual sinful inclinations, the way we fail and fall short, the way we almost sink between the waters, and we almost drown in our own evil. Except, just like Peter Christ reaches down and lifts us back up and helps us to try again. And we believe that in the United Methodist Church. The tension and the struggle here is not that we believe that there are people that are trying to destroy the United Methodist Church. I don't believe that any of our 824 delegates to General Conference are out to actively destroy our church. I do believe that every single one of us wants this church to reflect God accurately that we want this church to be filled with grace and truth, and we want God's love to be tangible but real. And so we struggle with that. If we simply fling wide the portals and the doors, are we being authentically Christian? 
or are we negating the text? And that's where each Christian has the work to do. Where is the authority of the text for you? What is the text trying to say? Why is it okay to condemn slave traders but not slave owners? Why is it okay for us in some places to say that there is no male or female, but in other places to tell people that they may not utter a word? We struggle with this, and we do it in many aspects of our life, and this is no different. Unfortunately, the church has not had these conversations, not publicly and not with endurance. Every now and then someone may kind of throw it out, but now we are forced, the question has been called, and we have to wrestle. But before we can allow 824 people to wrestle for the future of the church in St. Louis, each and every one of us must wrestle as individual Christians. We cannot abdicate our responsibility because the truth is that the power and the authority of the church flows from you. I will go there not as Sarah Wastella. I will go there as your pastor. Because as long as I am appointed to you, that is my identity. That is who I am. And it is inseparable from the way that I think and the way that I feel. And how you feel affects me. And it is like that for every single delegate. Every delegate is a member of a church or a member of a conference. And all of us feel the pain and the struggle. All of us feel the anxiety. But we can't just make a decision for you. That's not how power and authority flows in the Methodist church. It flows upward. I represent you. Lay delegates represent you. And how we feel and what we yearn for and what we feel called to do. So the work that you do and the way that you come out on this issue is heard. It is recognized. It is valuable. It is vital. It is important. And we need to do this work. At some point throughout history, Christians have gathered together and they have done vital work. They did it in Nicaea and created the creed. They have done it in other places and codified the scriptures. There are multiple times in the history of Christianity that Christians came together and made monumental decisions, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we feel those effects today. We cannot think that this will not affect us or that it is not important. But unlike some of those other circumstances, you have a place in this. And it is important for us to do this work together. There is no easy answer. In fact, when we talk about hermeneutics, I've had multiple people say to me, you know, I wish Jesus had just talked about this. And then we could just go, see? Unfortunately, he didn't. But Jesus does have something very interesting to say about human sexuality. And we're going to talk about that next week. I have discovered it about six years ago, and I've been wrestling with it ever since. And next week, we're going to wrestle together with it because it's an alarming text. And it's quite possible that in Jesus' own miraculous way, Jesus is giving us a framework by which to have this conversation because Jesus was gracious like that. But here we are now. Many of us are feeling lost. I think every single United Methodist wants to make people happy. I mean, I'm sure there are some people out there who that's their sin. They want to see people miserable. But most Methodists want people to know that they are forgiven, loved, and free. We don't want people to hunger, so we feed them. We don't want people to languish and suffer after natural 
disasters, so we created and perpetuate UMCOR. We don't want people to think that in their moment of need that they have to go bankrupt and lose their homes, and so we have benevolence funds to meet their needs in times of struggle. We do this because we believe that we are called to ensure that people know that they are loved by their good shepherd. This conversation is no different from that. The stakes are very high, fearfully so. And yet here we are, together, doing this. And there are other Methodists around the world doing the same work. When we leave this place, after we receive Holy Communion, our job will continue. The spiritual work of the disciple is never done. We will continue to search the scriptures. We will continue to prayerfully discern. We will continue to pray, to gather together and ask, God, who would you have us be? In a moment, we'll be taking Holy Communion. And when Jesus gave us this gift, he wasn't just giving us a memorial. It's not a sacred drama that we reenact up here where I simply show you things that Jesus may or may not have had. We partake in it and we call it a day. We believe that this is a sacrament, which means that the Holy Spirit is not only at work on the elements, but it is at work in us so that it can be at work through us later on. We believe in the transformative power of what's about to happen here because one, we recognize that we need to be transformed. And two, we understand that God is still making us new. God continues to make us as individual Christians, as United Methodists, new. And if we don't get in the way with what we want, but prayerfully discern what God is calling forth, then God will make the United Methodist Church new. And what that looks like, we do not yet know. The Apostle Paul once said, we see now dimly. But when he comes, we shall see him as he is. And so we seek to be those who want the clarity, who have heard the call, and are ready to be transformed that this world may be transformed. That is the work before us. And as we move into this moment where we encounter the risen Christ at the table, it's a time for us to earnestly and holistically and wholly pray that God will make us whom God wants us to be. And may it be so, for this is what the world cries out for in the darkness of the night, in the overwhelming tidal flood of human sin, and desperate to know that they too can be forgiven, loved, and free. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.